Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm joined here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Julia Yaffe of the elitist publication The Atlantic, and Corey Shockey in Stanford, or at Stanford, in Palo Alto, in her hot tub, having a blast as usual. Now, we're here. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the news of the week, shall we? You know, let's just pick up on a few of the stories that have been hot stories. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court of the United States said that part of Donald Trump's travel ban slash suspension could be implemented until they hear the case. And it looks like three members of the court are like totally down with Trump, the three most conservative members. Uh, It also looks like Justice Kennedy is going to stay on the court, or at least he hasn't resigned yet. So it looks like he may be around for next year. Um, But it was kind of surprising because essentially what they said was that the lower courts were wrong because they focused on the religious implications and the national security implications and the rights of the president in that regard were strong. Rosa Brooks, you're an associate dean at the Georgetown University Law School. This is right up your alley. What is the significance of all of this? Uh, it's hard to say, which is what lawyers always say as answers to questions. Um, it depends. Um, obviously, the court has not reached the substantive issues that are really at the heart of the challenges to the executive order. Um, all they're really, you know, all that we've had so far uh, have been stays. Um, And essentially they're saying, all right, we'll let you go ahead with a piece of this and we're going to take the next couple of months to try to figure out whether we're going to let you go ahead with the rest of it or whether we're going to kill the whole thing or exactly what parts of this we're going to let you move forward with. So I don't think people should necessarily read too much into this. I I think that we don't – this doesn't really tell us anything we didn't already know. Uh, which is that clearly there are going to be a few votes on the Supreme Court, hardcore conservative votes, uh, who are going to vote to uh, uh, allow the full executive order as as the Trump administration put it together to go forward. We know that there are a few hardcore liberal votes on the court that are going to oppose it in, you know, in all, any form. Uh, And we know that we got a couple votes in the middle. Um, So I don't I don't think that this really adds a whole lot. Uh, Nor do I think that this is going to change anything dramatically relative to last week or two weeks from now or or a month from now. Corey, do you think this has any foreign policy consequence? I mean, how does the world look at this? How do people from those countries, from other Muslim countries look at this? And what do they conclude about the U.S.? So I think they conclude three things. The first is 
the um, I I think we will long bear negative consequences of how awful the initial travel ban was, uh, how much it was an anti-Islamic undertaking, how unrepentant the president was about that, uh, the the individual. Um, damage it caused people who got caught up in the maw as it was going into effect and then stayed by the courts. I think that is very real damage, both to the vision of America as living our values and as a force for good in the international order. The second effect I think it has is that um, is that all countries manage immigration into them. And the United States is by no means the worst of countries in, or the most repressive or the most repellent in how they do that. Um, uh, so, so we're not the only people being judged. And I think it's important to keep that perspective. But the third thing is the really important message, uh, a really important message about this is about checks and balances in the American system and how important it is to have independent courts that are sitting in judgment of executive action and have the ability to halt it. And I think that's actually a really great message about the United States and who we are. Do you want to say something, Julia? Yes. Um, I I think it's interesting that the court essentially said um, – you know, this is about national security, and so we can let part of this stand while we while we wait to hear arguments and then make our decision. But it doesn't, in any way. I mean, the 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 travel ban, the Muslim ban, whatever you call it, was the design was or the offered explanation was we just need these ninety days and these one hundred and twenty days to take a pause and reassess all these mechanisms and all these procedures under which we allow people to come into our country. At this point, more than 90 days and more than 120 days have passed. Has DHS under uh, General Kelly, have any of these um, government institutions now manned by Trump's appointees, have they in any way reevaluated? I don't know the answer to this question. I don't I haven't seen any reporting on this or done any myself, but have they taken any steps to do what they said they were going to do? And if they haven't, then maybe, you know, everybody's been focusing on Trump's statements on the um that it's a Muslim ban, that it's a, tra- you know, uh, but not on the other underlying lie, which is that this is not about reassessing anything or improving any procedures. It's just about keeping a certain group out. Very important in analysis, in analysis of the Trump administration to identify as many as possible of the underlying lies. <laughs> which Otherwise- the New York Times <laughs> also well, did this week, by the and way. And the underlying just strategic bits of strategic idiocy. I mean, I mean it has been... Uh, argued by by many on the right uh, with some validity that, you know, if Obama had tried to do this, nobody would have challenged it. And I think, you know, of course not nobody, somebody would have challenged it. But, but you know, Trump is very much the author of his own woes here, you know, that if, if he hadn't spent uh, a couple of years running around saying Muslim ban, Muslim ban, Muslim ban, uh, and if his surrogates hadn't been doing exactly the same thing, and if he had simply come in and said, you know, we're going to have a short-term uh, uh, pause 
uh, while we reevaluate, and it has absolutely nothing to do with religion, and we, we welcome, you know, the U.S., as it always has, will continue to welcome refugees of all faiths. Um, however, you know, temporary pause with waivers for personal hardship and so forth, I think it probably would not have gotten, you know, one-tenth of the level of challenge this has gotten. I mean, I think the reason that this has been challenged and the reason that it, it has been so vulnerable in the courts and remains quite vulnerable uh, is because, you know, although the president has enormous latitude when it comes to immigration and national security, Congress obviously also plays an important role. There is legislation passed by Congress prohibiting discrimination on the basis of national origin, et cetera, in, 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 in immigration decisions. Uh, and you know, when you go out of your way, as Trump and his surrogates seem to do, to thumb their nose at the intent of Congress in passing that legislation in the first place, and to try to make it clear, even when other people try to help you and saying, oh, it's not discriminatory, by, by doubling down on Muslim ban, well, you know, that's, that's, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get endless litigation. Let me, let me move to another item from this week's headlines. I have a few here that I'd like to get at. Um, Corey, let me start with you on this one. Uh, there was a really good piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago that looked at the Russia hack and looked at the Obama administration's response or lack thereof to the Russia hack and made the point that Obama could have done more, probably should have done more, uh, uh, was a bit of a deer in the headlights. Obama supporters immediately came out of the woodwork saying, oh, no, he, he meant well. It was the Republicans who kept him from doing anything or he was afraid of how Russia might respond, which, of course, you know, the counterargument is that leaders have to face that kind of thing and just do stuff. And he didn't. Um, and so the question is, you know, is – I got this a lot on Twitter. I tweeted out a couple of things. Where people were like, how dare you make a moral equivalency between Obama's – spinelessness and and Trump's valuelessness. Um, um, they didn't put it that way. But that's, 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 good. that's a good um, summary. Yeah. That's a good summary. <laughs> but, but it is a good way to put it. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. First of all, it's a whole other issue. Obama supporters, and, and I, you know, I was in the Clinton administration. I'm a Democrat. I'm like, you know, kind of, you know, I, supportive of a bunch of things he did. They're so sensitive to ever suggesting that he possibly had a flaw. But these things don't happen overnight. And Russia was started hacking and doing this stuff in 2015 at least. So this has been going on for a while. And the United States is still, you know, d not really inclined to do anything substantive about it. So, Corey, and then I'll go over to Julia. Uh, so, yes, David, you are exactly right. Um, uh, President but, Obama but did. Right? <laughs> President Obama did much too little when alerted about Russian um, bad behavior. Republicans, in particular Mitch McConnell, have an awful lot to answer for for driving up the cost for for facilitating him doing too little instead of understanding this as a threat to our country and responding as patriots rather than as narrow partisans um and you know uh, so both of those things are true and there are many more ways in which we were much too relaxed 
relaxed about what was happening. You know, the FBI calling and leaving a message at Clinton headquarters instead of walking over there. Like, there are just so many ways. DNC, back when I DNC. was a civil... Back when, DNC, thank you. Back when I was a, a civilian, civil appointee in the Pentagon, back in the mid-1990s, we had... Deep state, deep Bill state. Perry was, <laughs> Bill Perry was the uh, defense secretary. We had this alarming set of, of airplane crashes, American military airplane crashes. And people were starting to wonder whether we had a systemic problem. Perry had a group go investigate it. And when they came back and said, no, there's no connection between them, it's just a spooky coincidence. And and Bill Perry said, yeah, that's about what I imagined because, you know, you start, um, when things like this happen, a whole bunch of failures have to happen simultaneously. And I think that's the explanation for why the Russians have been so effective in targeting uh, their operations in the United States because the media thought Clinton was going to win and so didn't go after this story as heavily, right? The FBI director. There are so many mistakes that have to happen, and almost all of them did. But but let me ask you, isn't there a core mistake here? Isn't the core mistake or the core problem that President Obama and President Trump are both afraid of responding to the Russians in the way that the Russians need to be responded to? The Russians attack the United States and we are afraid to retaliate in any meaningful way. Because we're afraid of escalation, but – we're, we're not calling their bluff. I don't think they would ask. They, like, look, for example, what happened in Syria with the 59 useless tomahawks. I mean, there was no that could have easily led to a spiral of es- escalation. Well, see, if, and it didn't. If, but see, if anything, it just, you know, they kind of were thrown back on their heels. We're like, whoa, what was but isn't, that? Isn't the game theory conclusion that unless you are willing to take the risk of escalation, you will not be effective in stopping the other side from doing what they're doing? I mean, I, this, this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, I, I do think it's fair to say that the Obama administration mishandled Russia badly, not just on, on the hacking stuff, but, but going back to Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, you know, that, that, that we, we did the worst possible thing. I mean, if, whether you're thinking game theory, you're thinking Machiavelli, or you're thinking diplomatic theory, which is that we, you know, we did the equivalent of what President Obama did on Syria, which is we laid down a whole bunch of red lines of this will be unacceptable, it's unacceptable, you can't do that, you can't do that. And then they did it anyway, we didn't do anything. We just kind of said, well, and we told you that was unacceptable, and it still is, and we sulked. You know, and I think that the, it is absolutely Ooh, true. That not the, the sulking. <laughs> the, right. And Putin said, oh, my God, don't sulk. But, you know, um, you're going to get wrinkles. The, the message that we we did transmit to to Russia was um, we don't really care enough to do anything more than make, you know, occasional noises. Well, this is the thing. And so we tend to approach these things from the point of view of, well, we want to respond, but we don't want to take any risks. And please don't escalate. Well, I when, mean, it's the cut, cut it out, right? But, but, which is which is bullshit. I mean, it, it, it is w- bullshit. And in fact, the response ought to be 
escalate, motherfucker. You know, <laughs> bring it. You know, yeah, because you know, they be, won't. They won't. Because they won't. And if also, that's your attitude. Because because I mean, we talked about this in a, in a previous episode that that sometimes these conversations tend to assume that that the we have two alternatives. One of which is we do nothing and we let them walk all over us, and the other is that we launch nuclear weapons. You know, and obviously that there are lots and lots of things in between. Um, that range from economic measures, that range to undertaking our own offensive cyber actions. I don't think anybody in Russia is nearly as crazy as Donald Trump. Well, I'm sure they've got some crazy people, but as far as I can tell, nobody sitting in uh, with access to enormous power is quite as crazy as Donald Trump. I don't think that there's any particular likelihood that anybody in Russia starts escalating to the nuclear level. You know, I think that I think that escalation might happen, but it's not going to be World War III. You know, but that's I mean, but that's what happens. Like yeah, you can't. Yeah. You know, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition and nobody expects the Russians to hack your election or to invade Ukraine and violate the Budapest Memorandum, which was aimed at, you know, like, but you didn't want it to happen, but it's happened. You got to do something about it. So here's here's a question that I have that I'm wrestling with. And maybe, Julia, you can help me answer uh, because you watch uh, Russia affairs much more closely than I do. Um, I looking to the future rather than to the past. Um, so it clearly established that Russia was attempting to influence the U.S. election. Um, but what do we think Putin's end game is, right? Uh, do we think Putin is happy with what he got, e.g. Donald Trump? Um, do we think Putin is thinking, oh, shit, I didn't realize how nuts he was? Um, do we think they – do? Is, is the what's the long-term goal? Is the long-term goal just confusion to our enemies and we don't really care what form that confusion takes, but the more the U.S. is tied up in knots and we can help get them tied up in knots, the happier we are? Or is there is there anything more specific with regard to regional affairs, with regard to economic policy that they're looking for? I think it's all of those things. Uh but it's also a kind of an extension of Russia's policy in Syria and in Ukraine, which was to draw a line in Ukraine and Syria. The point was to draw their own red line and say, you know what? Enough regime change. This regime change bullshit stops here because we know that next you're coming for Putin. This was the offensive side of the coin, which is you do regime change, we do regime change. And they succeeded. They did not expect to succeed. They thought they were just going to, as one Obama advisor put it, kill the uh, Clinton presidency in in the crib. Instead, they killed it in the womb. And we got um, got another image I didn't need. Sorry. We try to have one such image. But... um, I don't know that the again the Russians did not expect to get Trump and now they see that because of how he came to power and because of their role in it it's backfiring badly as a lot of Russian things do because because what drives me mad about the American narrative about Russia is that Putin is this perfect villain who has thought 15 steps mm-hmm. ahead he has planned for every eventuality and he can then execute his perfectly concocted plans with perfect efficiency and nothing could be further from the truth. And this is a case in point. Like this is – this did not go well for him. He got his guy elected. He did – basically he gave Rush, uh, America a taste of its own medicine as he sees it. And he got this crazy guy who also because of what he, Putin did cannot do anything to meet him on this stuff because 
of the way our political system is um, set up and also because of what Obama ended up doing, which he should have done in the fall, which was making the intelligence community put together a report, have a non uh, a public unclassified version that kicked up a lot of dust and start, you know, triggered all kinds of hearings and congressional investigations that have now ensured that, you know, if Mike, uh, if Michael Flynn had stayed in the White House, he, I mean, he was trying from day one to lift Russia sanctions unilaterally without getting anything from Russia. Now, because of what Putin did and because of what Obama ended up doing, those sanctions are going to be with us forever and they're going to be with Russia forever. That's definitely not what Putin wanted. Well, let me let me go to a core point of, of Rosa's analysis here, which Julia touched upon. Uh, Corey, you're probably familiar with the Goldwater rule. This is a rule passed by the American Psychiatric Association, which says that psychiatrists are not allowed to opine on the mental health of leading public figures that they haven't examined. You're, you're Doesn't fami- say anything about pundits not opining. <laughs> exactly. So, David, I actually thought the Goldwater rule was the one that Senator Barry Goldwater tried to institute to prohibit women from attending military academies, saying that as soon as they could piss over a six-foot fence, he would support them uh, being able to be military academy. Uh, that's first, not the one you're talking about, though? First of all, I'm not sure that's the one. And secondly, I'm pretty sure that in the movie G.I. Jane, Demi Moore actually does that. But uh, that's, again, it's, a, it's an that, aside. Is that like a major military tactic, peeing over, peeing over a fence? Yeah. It's actually for the United States. <laughs> is that what was on the tape? It's, it's for, as far as we go now. Right. That's, that's, that's what we're willing to threaten. But, right. but, so, but, but let's get back Don't to this do point. Else. We keep pee talking. We keep talking. Right. I will pee. This is where I will pee in. I will be on the outside of your tent pissing in as opposed to being on the inside of your but, 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 Corey, we keep talking about the, you know, he, the, Putin didn't get the lunatic he thought he was getting or he got a lunatic instead of the jerk he thought he was getting. But there's different kinds of lunacy. And, you know, there's, there's sort of Mad King Ludwig Neuschwanstein lunacy. And there's kind of uh, emperor has no clothes lunacy. And there's kind of Yertle the turtle lunacy, lunacy where you sort of want to be the emperor of all you survey. So you get on the backs of all the turtles. And I think Donald Trump falls into those groups. Then there's kind of Stalin, Hitler. So wait a second. Wait a second. Before you go any further, I need to interrupt you to say two things. Thing one. Um, thing two. As thing two. I was listening to, to your descriptions of craziness. I have to tell you that both Mel Brooks would be proud, and second, this is the reason I'm on the ER on the Deep State Radio podcast wow. because, wow. because David, <laughs> that was so great. Um, so so thank you for bringing tears of appreciation to my eyes as you go about delimiting the number. Of ways the president could be crazy. Right. So please right. continue. And it was the juxtaposition, I'm sure, between Ludwig II and Yertle the Turtle that you went for. Yes. Right. It really, <laughs> it really, it's the spectrum, David. It is. That's the spectrum we work on. It's, it's psychiatrists have a spectrum. They think that's on also. But in any event, but there's the other kind, which is the Stalin, Hitler, or sort of, you know, Scarface kind, you know, come and talk to my little friend kind of you know, lunatics that's really violent. Trump's not really in the second category, is he? I mean, this guy just, I mean, if he, if he 
was told that the way that he could prove himself to the world was to have the biggest gold toilet seat in the world, he would focus on that, right? I don't know. That's the question. Um, So, David, I think that's actually... David, I think that's actually quite complacent because if you think back to the president's political rallies where he was cheering the abuse of people present and incentivizing violence, um, that's, that's pretty far beyond the year of the turtle. I think the best description of the president so far is from our mutual friend, Ben Wittes, founder of the Lawfare blog, who says that the president's malevolence is being outpaced by his incompetence. Um, you know, as I often say on this show, Corey, you're absolutely which right. Which makes him, which makes him kind of like Putin, actually. <laughs> well, he is kind of like he is kind of like Putin. But is there an end game for Putin? I think he has. So Putin's strategy. Two things. One is it's a negative strategy as opposed to a constructive positive strategy. It's to rather than to offer an alternative to American hegemony, <clears throat> it's. It's just a way to kind of rough it up, get it into a couple fender benders, knock it down a few notches, whatever metaphor you use, right? It's to sow chaos. The other goal ultimately is domestic and it's to stay in power as long as he can because the system that he created is so personally dependent on him. Um, It's why he constantly evokes the examples of Iraq, post Saddam Hussein and the American intervention, Libya post the NATO intervention, uh, Egypt post America saying Mubarak must go, Assad after, uh, Syria after Obama saying Assad must go, is that, you know, after me comes the flood. Unfortunately, he has ensured that after him, the flood will come. And being scared of that, he wants to stay in power as long as possible. The problem, um, and, and this is part of it, right? It's to make sure that America doesn't meddle in his domestic affairs and topple him sooner than um, than he dies. Okay. So let me move to a third point or fourth point about the week. I'm losing track. Another thing that's being debated in the United States this week that many people would think has nothing to do with national security or foreign policy is health care law. But it seems like the Senate of the United States is about to vote on a bill which will take away the health coverage of tens of millions of Americans, possibly affect as many as 70 million Americans in terms of the amount they pay, uh, really hit hard people who are on Medicaid and people who are on poor, who are poor, and really benefit the rich. Now, let's just set aside the, the inequality component of this. Can anybody here, being foreign policy and national security professionals who think about this all the time, think of any act that any terrorist group could do to the United States that would be more damaging than passing this health care bill in terms of lives lost, human suffering, economic damage, uh, or tears to the fabric of American society? Yes, a terrorist setting off a nuclear weapon in New York City would kill 8 million people immediately. Okay. Well, first of all, that would be a really big nuclear weapon, which no terrorist group has. And uh, if they have it, do they have the means of delivering it? And it, Well, exactly right. And so, 
you know, the, 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 the reality is that if you take the terrorist groups we've got and the tools that they likely use and all the ter- – I mean we could go and frame it another way, which we could say more people are likely to die as a consequence of this bill than have died in all the terrorist attacks in the United States in history. Well, this is why – I mean the, this is why the ter- – the, the kind of jingoism around terrorism has uh, – has so infuriates me. I mean there is really – especially when it comes to ISIS, this uh, administration talking about ISIS constantly while get, trying to get in bed with the Russians because ISIS has never been and will not be an existential threat to the U.S., Russia is an existential threat to the U.S. It's really the one of the only countries in the world that can pose an existential threat. And this constant harping on ISIS and terrorists being – they're not. Terrorists, terrorists are not an existential threat to the U.S. They just the only, aren't. There are only two countries that are existential threats to the United States, Russia and China as far as I can tell. Are there yeah. other countries and that ourselves. are ex- – And ourselves. And yeah, ourselves. I was going to say. As, yeah. as Abraham Lincoln But I, I mean I noted. think – I love that Lincoln quote. Um you know, the in all kinds of ways, obviously, um, our fixation on Islamic terrorism has caused us both to overspend on on programs for which we have received virtually no return. And there is a a great book that I recommend to our listeners called Chasing Ghosts by John Mueller and Mark Stewart which tries to really uh, look very hard at the numbers in terms of counterterrorism investments and return and concludes that uh, we, we pour unbelievable amounts of money into extremely dubious counterterrorism efforts, far more than we put into preventing other kinds of deaths. That when you look at it from a sort of public health and actuarial perspective, how much money should we be willing to spend to ward off various kinds of bad things, deaths, illnesses, etc. Well, it's kind of a so- an issue of sovereignty. I'm sorry to interrupt, right? Like, you don't get to kill our people. We get to we kill, get to kill our, our people. people. Only we get to kill. <laughs> yeah, you, you know that that that, that it, it's true. Our, it's it's a yeah, dark. but our obsession with this has both has both caused us to spend money on stupid things that bring no return, and it's caused us to uh, ignore or or basically take our eyes off the ball on all kinds of issues that are in, in, in both the long run and sometimes in the short run much more serious in terms of threats to the U.S. interest. There was there was a piece actually um, that I happened to catch on uh, TV this morning where they were interviewing one of the guys in Ohio that deals with a fifth of its territory when it, in terms of dealing with drug overdoses, fentanyl overdoses. And he said that this year he's predicting about 2,000 uh, overdoses and some of them will be deaths. So that's about 10,000 overdoses just for the state of Ohio. And the reporter on the piece made the point that that's like, what, three 9-11s in one year? Just from just for o- Ohio. opioids. Right. Yeah, just, and just from Ohio. Yeah, well, and this is, you know, this is sort of what gets me is that if a guy with a knife stabs somebody in the street in New York and says, Allahu Akbar, and when he does it, It'll be the front page of every newspaper and Donald Trump will block travel from a bunch of other countries and the Congress will add $100 billion to the defense budget and we'll go completely nuts. And can I add a corollary to that? But if there's um, a white guy who shoots up a place – For instance. For instance. 
No, of course, never. Uh, they're not terrorists. They're just mentally ill. And we have to talk about not about our gun laws, but about mental mental health. And but we won't ever fund it, obviously. But, but this, you know, Corey, you're a very serious national security professional. You just co-edited a book with General James Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense. You've worked in this area your whole life. And 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 people object in the national security community when we talk about American lives lost at home or policies that weaken America as though that was not national security. And yet, if you go to George Kennan's long telegram, which you probably have in front of you as we speak. Or memorized. And more memorized. <laughs> yeah. and, and you go to George Kennan's long telegram and you look at the last couple of paragraphs of it. He points out, as Lincoln did, the only people who can hurt us are us. The only ways we can weaken ourselves is by not being example to the world, by not taking care of ourselves, by not offering up this story. And yet we do this kind of rampant damage to ourselves and it doesn't rise to the same level in the minds of these people. And this is how countries decline and grow weak and that's why it's national security. Or am I overstating it because I'm hysterical and I'm on the East Coast? Well, um, I do agree I was taking notes as Rosa Rosa was talking because I hadn't read that book and it sounds fantastic. And I do agree that we uh, overreact quite often to to terrorism or to shocking incidents of violence uh, because it feels different than than the threats we're all accustomed to. And that I also agree that the United States has best served by being strong, vibrant, resilient ourselves. Um, Theodore Roosevelt in his 1901 or 1903 uh, message to Congress, what we now call the State of the Union, has this fantastic line about how uh, America's uh, national security is best served by solving our problems at home. And he explicitly talks about racism in that regard. Um, But, uh, and the last point I will say on this is that the Secretary of All Defense, uh, Citizen Mattis, uh, gave testimony to the budget committees a couple of weeks ago in which he said no terrorist could do as much damage to America's national security as sequestration has done. So I think uh, he, he seems to share your perspective on that, David. When you made the comment about Citizen Mattis, I know this is part of your campaign that we continue to view him as a civilian, but I couldn't help but think of the scene in Evita where the crowd is calling Evita a whore over and over again, and an old gentleman walks out and says, "Um, I haven't been on the sea in years, but they still call me Admiral. Uh, In other words, our our oldest titles stick with us no matter where we've we've been. I I do think... um it's it's been really interesting to see how much uh, senior military leaders over the last you know 15 years now have tried to get uh, the attention of Congress and American and the American public to focus on things like uh, childhood nutrition and obesity, uh, 70, childhood education. This 70 percent of the people in the United States are obese. Right. The fastest growing cause of death in the United States. Is obesity, whether it's and there was a report that was done uh, a number of sort of eminent senior uh, retired military officers. It was it was titled the was the memorable "Too Fat to Fight," 
uh, and they were framing it as a, a military manpower problem. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 when the majority of the eligible population who are eligible to be recruited into the armed forces, uh, right age, etc., uh, cannot do it because they are too fat. You know. Um, the only that what noti- boot camp is for? The only noticeable <laughs> well, example. Too fat for boot camp. Yeah. The only notable example being Konishiki, the Hawaiian-born sumo wrestler, also known as the dump truck. Um, but most... <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. But <laughs> so some people, some fat people are very fit to fight. But but no, I mean I mean the broader point, needless to say, is is that uh, the I think that the military is actually quite concerned about what we see as some of these domestic issues. You know, e.g., uh, because if you have a population that is obese and is suffering from various preventable health problems, if you have a population that has extremely high incidence of drug use and abuse, if you have a population that is poorly educated, that affects military readiness, that that does affect national security in Well, let me pick up on a point that ways. you were... Um, and I think that the slightly depressing thing, and this is something that, that I've written about elsewhere, is that we have turned into a society where the only possible way to get members of Congress to give a hoot about any of those issues that are vital to the the health and wellness of our population that we should care about independently, not just for military readiness reasons. The only way to get them to care is to couch it in terms of military readiness, and even then, it's a it's a pretty tough sell. Well, the it's, particular- not, it's not sexy. It's not like fighting terrorists, and uh, but, you know, it's a clear good versus evil. Black and white issue. Well, it's also this this isn't sexy. But also, it goes back to the point that was made jokingly earlier, which is this sort of notion that we have a right to kill ourselves. Uh, And if people in the society feel that that's a natural right, that they can kill themselves or charge the country whatever you want for health care later on in your life uh, because of the path that you choose, then, of course, they're— Don't worry. They won't be getting any health care. Well, yeah, except at the emergency room. That's right. But, you know, I I once went on television and I was on some CNN show and we were talking about terrorism. And I said, far more dangerous than ISIS is sugar. And, you know, because sugar is fueling the obesity epidemic and sugar will be responsible for many more deaths in a year than, uh, than, than, you know, terrorist attacks will be in probably all of American history. And it got a lot of crap from people who were like, oh, how can you minimize terrorism? Every time, though, every time you try to keep people... Uh, in perspective on terrorism, they freak out and they say, so you don't think you don't care about the 3000 people killed on 9-11? Yeah. Well, you I, just don't care. I mean, I think there's a there is a broader problem, which is certainly not unique to Americans, but we may have a we may have a particularly bad case of it, which is an inability to sort of talk in a rational way about risks. Um, and probabilities <laughs> that we're just not good at. It. I mean, it's not that. There's different. There's the understatement of well, the day. Yeah. I mean, it's not that different from the from the. What do you mean? You let your your ten year old go out to the local park by themselves. A pedophile could abduct them, and if you sort of roll your eyes, people say, "Well, you'll feel so bad when your child is abducted by the pedophile." And you think, "Well, yeah, <laughs> I would," but that's sort of neither here nor there. The odds are really low, and if I keep my child locked in the basement to protect her from the pedophiles, that's going to have fa- some too fat yeah, to that's fight. Have yeah. some problems. Too, but but I mean I, I think that I think that we you know Julia said it earlier that that there's there's a lot of research from psychologists on this 
uh, how people how people come up with their own assessments of relative risk and the the extreme event, the shocking event, the event that involves sort of malevolent intent, you know, that we tend to inflate those things and we tend to assume that they are in terms in, in probabilistic terms much more likely to happen and that they happen much more often. In fact, they do happen. Whereas those kind of slow threats like poor nutrition, climate change, we can't conceptualize it. We can't see a person and who is more killed Complex. They're more complex. They would involve a lot more actors. There's no one person to blame or one organization to blame. So I think across the board, we make all kinds of horrifically bad decisions and non-decisions as but a result. But that's also how terrorism works, right? It's yeah, it's, it's, sh- it's spectacular. It gets right. your short-term attention. It it it's premised hits, on the fact that we will respond in and it hits it hits all the right and, and, and about, the right points in your brain. Yeah. And when you talk about irrational ways, Corey, as you've just finished the your book. How do you feel about the fact that that book may well be targeted very soon by TSA for people having to take it out of their bags? I don't know if you saw the story today. It's a but TS- I did. TS- and, oh my God. And, no, Corey's and, book. And only Corey's only book. Only Corey's book. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that would be such an amazing compliment that my book is so dangerously provocative to people's thinking that it cannot God. possibly be Read that would, in a weird way, be a compliment. TSA but it, to increase that in no way material. would defend. Does that mean the that TSA is going to no start to way. read? So Rosa's gone to exactly where I was going to, which is that um, TSA being too ignorant to do its job is not a sufficient basis for restricting people's rights. Right? If TSA is so fearful that people are carrying incendiary literature, but they don't know how to read it, the answer is figure out how to read it. Well, but what if it's really, what if it's really incendiary? (laughs) Well, then it's just a (laughs) Samsung. Then it's just a Samsung phone that lights up in your hand. Well, but, but, you know, this, you know, this is the flip side of this, right? The flip side of it is that one of the consequences of the war on terror, as framed earlier by by each of you. But one of the consequences is that we have defined the threat as potentially everyone, potentially everywhere, with potentially everything they are carrying. And so we don't want them to go on airplanes. We take off our shoes. We do this. We do that. Well, that's not a threat assessment any more than, you know. And, and this book I was talking about exactly earlier. Exactly right. Ghost, it's security theater. Issue. It's security theater. It's, mm-hmm. And indeed, this, this was uh, – my take on this, you know, the old joke about the guy, uh, he's this guy walking through, you know, midtown Manhattan. He's got a stick and he's rhythmically banging the stick on all the store windows he passes. And finally, a guy walking near him stops him and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And he says, oh, you know, I'm keeping away tigers. And the guy says, well, there are no tigers here. And the guy says, see, it works. You know, that, <laughs> exactly. that, that I think you have to read most of our counterterrorism and homeland security efforts in that sense, you know, if you think of them as subject to any kind of cost-benefit analysis, they're crazy, they're stupid. If you think of them as magic ritual to ward off evil, 
Uh, that's what they are. It's it's magical thinking. It's it's well. That's it's, also, also wait. Sorry. While we're talking about national security jokes, can I just refer <laughs> listeners to As the we were. To, to General Kelly? No, no. no to to actually an amazing sketch by Kean Peel about Al Qaeda sitting in a cave, plotting, and they're saying we haven't downed any planes recently. What's up, guys? Why aren't you on this? And they're like, well, leader, we've been trying, but we keep being thwarted at every turn by the slick and sophisticated TSA <laughs> and how did they know how did they know he was like well how about bringing a 3.5 inch blade on a plane and they're like we can't because how did the TSA know that a 3.4 th- inch blade is right because that 4 ounce bottle of shampoo exactly is, it's, it's is an amazing the, amazing exactly. amazing sketch is the trigger to our collective yeah. Doom. You know, I once wrote something in which the image that was in my mind, and I can't get it out of my mind, is of a 425-pound man walking down a darkened street. No, he's hacking. He's no, hacking our elections. Well, and then he got up, and he's walking down a darkened street eating a Big Mac, and he's afraid he's going to be mugged, but the hamburger is more likely to kill him. And that this is this this is America, you know. America is this four hundred and twenty-five pound man walking down a street, eating a Big Mac, and we're very fearful of what's going to pop out of the dark, and we're going to die from something else. Now, we have ninety seconds well, left. I'm glad we've gotten back to the theme of our podcast, which is that you're going to die of something else anyway. Right, exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Rosa, <laughs> for bringing it back to one of your dark holes of despair. You do not get the optimism, Tierra. <laughs> um, so it's I'm gonna, Rosa we from her silo. Okay, I'm going to give each one of you one last opportunity to speak here. As we have grown and prospered as a podcast in three weeks, and we have built a massive audience of more than 11 listeners, and the nerds have shown their creativity on the web and you know via social media, uh, coming up with ways to promote the podcast and promote the, the community that we've built here, there have been a few people who have said, how can you use the term deep state This is a term used by Sean Hannity and all the other imbeciles of the world. And therefore, you know, you are playing right into their hands. Yes. Um, And I'm giving you each 30 seconds to respond to these assholes. Rosa. Uh, I I bring it on. Sean Hannity. We are on his show and we will we will show him what, what we will show him what the deep state can really do when he invites us onto his show. Uh, we are, in fact, running the world. Uh, there's just no two ways about it, and and I'm I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> Thank you, and I'm glad to have you running the world, you and your dog, <laughs> Julia. I was going to say, um, yeah, it's a it's a problematic term, but we're maybe reclaiming it here. You know, much in the way other derogatory terminology has been reclaimed. So you know, more so deep state power, positive cultural appropriation. Yes, that's Would right. Would you prefer the shallow state? We've, that's what we've got. I actually wrote yeah. an article the saucer state. called The Shallow State. As ever, Corey, the so, last word. <laughs> so I have two reactions. First, um, people who are anxious about about the name Deep State Radio are not necessarily bad people or overly fraught, David. I object to that characterization of them. I think lots of good people are anxious about it. But second, um, you know, I once heard an interview with the great Mel Brooks where he was asked whether the, the, mo- the play, the producers, didn't, um, you know, wasn't 
equally inappropriate for making jokes about Hitler. And he gave a really beautiful, poignant answer, which is that when dangers are are mocked, it's actually emboldening to people. It brings those dangers down into manageable proportions where we believe rightly that we can take action against them. And that's what I hope us choosing the name Deep State Radio will do. It will mock those who believe we are powerless against the challenges of our time and instead embolden us all to bear witness, to take action, to change the nature of our political discourse and our politics. Thank you. My response is twofold. The elevated response is this is a show that takes us from Clausewitz to Mel Brooks, from Thucydides to Dr. Seuss. And if you can't go to both places, you can't actually see the world in perspective. And we're trying to put it in some perspective by being informed but also seeing humor where it lies. The other comes from my roots in New Jersey uh, and runs slightly contrary to Corey (laughs) and what Corey just said, (laughs) which is a corollary, by the way, to the Obama doctrine of don't do stupid shit. And that corollary is don't be a dick. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Wait a minute. How does that really wow. I don't understand, David. <laughs> well, I'll leave, the, I'll leave that to you to figure it out. What does it, it mean? Out. What does it mean exactly? Well, go Just work it out. And know? come back next week for another episode of Deep State Radio and every week and tweet and Facebook and follow Corey's horse and Put Rose's it on your dog. Instagram thing and your Instagram Snapchat thing, thing and, and your make us vomit rainbows with Snapchat. And um, <laughs> Do you make Snapchat, Rose? No, but I have children who are able to make people vomit rainbows. Exactly. And come and vomit rainbows. Or have dog ears. Vomit or rainbows snaps, with so. us here at Deep State Radio. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you again soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.